Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. It's CJ. Hopefully, everyone's having a fantastic day. It is Tuesday, December the 13th, and it's that time of the week again for another edition of The Great Game with Matthew Arrett. Do us a favor, if you have not done so yet, jump over to the CanadianPatriot.org. Uh, all the links are in the description where you can follow all of Matthew's work, uh, the Canadian Patriot, as well as the Rising Tide Foundation, and also to make sure to visit his Substack as well. Uh, with that being said... Matthew, great day. How are you, sir? Hey, CJ. I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Thank you. And I love the new intro. As always, there, there's always something new that you you throw into it for uh, for Creative Edge. So I, I appreciate that. There's a lot to go through, man. I mean, there there's. Uh, I know we were we were just chatting a little bit back and forth on Telegram about the different angles. Um, I had I had some thoughts regarding the developments on the uh, in the midst of the heartland and McIndoe's world island uh, which has historically been a, a major spark plug for arsonists out to uh, try to impose chaos with the hope that order could then be brought in out of said chaos um, Serbia is obviously what I'm referring to at the moment but obviously mm -hmm. the entire Balkan zone including in the northern region into the into Ukraine is a factor but this isn't it, it's not an easy thing on the surface to sort of dance around um right but right. It, it helped to put your mind into the disgusting disgusting vicarious skull of a halford mackinder type of grand strategist and just think when when, they're, when, a, when a british imperialist is looking at a map of the world how are they thinking right mm. how are they st mm. strategizing and from that standpoint when you look at the the very ethnically diverse um, multicultural matrix of not just Russia, which has a, something like 118 different different ethnic groups, languages, sub dialects, but also all the way down into central the Caucasus, Central Asia, Eastern Europe. You're dealing with Albanians, Bulgarians, Hungarians, Poles. You got uh, Estonians, Latvians. I mean, there's so many groups and then subgroups, some of which are uh, are Catholic, some are Muslim. I mean, a lot of Albanian Muslims right now are in Kosovo. It used to be mostly Serbs, but it's still a region in Kosovo, you know, with some pseudo autonomy, kind of like a, a kind of like a Ukraine. Uh, it's not a Ukraine, sorry, kind of like a Taiwan. You know, it's, it's a province of China, but it has 
special autonomous privileges, not really a country, but it's obviously, um, how, how is it that a, a, a geopolitical manipulator would be looking at these things and, and thinking, how can they inflame <laughs> prejudices for their own benefit? And there's, a, I think it was Lord Palmerston who said it best that the British Empire never has permanent friends, only permanent interests. Mm, mm, yeah. And I think that helps us sort of like negotiate or at least get our minds around some, some of the seeming support that Anglo-American um, operatives, you know, Anthony Blinken was just in Kosovo a couple of months back. As soon as he left after meeting with the leadership, all of a sudden you've you've got a, a, a strange set of provocative maneuvers, clampdowns on the minority minority uh, Serbs who live there by the the uh, National Endowment for Democracy government, which had obviously been given certain guarantees and promises to be allowed quick entry into the European Union that they've long been longing for into NATO, um, which I mean, technically Serbia is part of NATO, but they really want to have more for, like foreign Western controls and also that guarantee Kosovo's independence as a sovereign state, right? Kosovo tried to declare independence back in the 90s. The Serbian government saw it as an insurrectionary thing, which I think it was. Um, there was, in response, a retaliation. There was, a, in, in response to the, the Serbian government trying to bring order uh, to the separatist movement, they, there was a giant unilateral NATO NATO bombing that killed upwards of 13,000 people um, in the 90s. First time NATO was really used for those purposes. We saw after Blinken left um, back, I, I think it was in... I want to say September, that's when you really started having this push to start forcing everybody to use Kosovo license plates, even though most of the countries of the world, including the United Nations, don't recognize Kosovo as an independent country. Um, so, I mean, for, you know, this not independent country, this 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 province of Serbia, mm -hmm. demand that all people start using Kosovo independence <laughs> license plates. Which the Serbs who live there are like, no, we don't want to do that. It, that's that's illegal, and and against our conscience. So it, this turned into more of a crackdown. Different, uh, you know, forces began putting a lot of pressure on these people. Threats. Um, it has danced with violence. There were shoots between both uh, shoots that rang out between both sides during a blockade that began last week between police officers and people who were demonstrating um, that they are part of Serbia. Vucic, the president of Serbia, has basically said, you know, look, NATO, we're part of NATO. Do we have a right to deploy our own NATO troops to restore order in a part of our own sovereign territory? <clears throat> and of course, the Baerbrock said, uh, no, that is completely unacceptable. This is weird. <laughs> if you're a member of NATO, you'd think you have the right to use NATO troops according to NATO policy. To You would think, NATO. right? Yeah, you would think. But no, not at all. So the hypocrisy, I mean, the pop, the, the self-contradictions of the system just keep on coming out more and more. Um, Bo uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina has just been a fast entry into the European Union as well today, um, which is not in and of itself odd since it's been like a decade they've been trying. But the fact that the EU all agreed now today to do it at the moment when things are as hot as they are in Kosovo is not a coincidence and it and the fact that you know even Vucic, Vucic said well how are you going to be allowed entry into the EU when you're not even recognized as a sovereign country by the European Union <laughs> yeah um 
or and and the UN. So the whole thing's a mess. And but it's obviously being manipulated. These these groups are being given promises that they're going to have all sorts of privileges, guarantees, other things. And there's a, a high inflaming of ethnic nationalist uh, prejudices. So this this I think gets us back a little bit more into World War One because what was the spark plug of this insane war? It was on the one hand you could say a terrorist movement of Serbia that was mm. deployed kill an Austrian archduke that had jurisdiction over Serbia, you know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire at that time had a Serbian or a certain amount of influence in Serbia, um, a lot actually. So the Archduke Ferdinand was killed by the Serbian group called the Black Hand. And we're told then within a month, everybody was at war killing each other. Now that that's an overly simplified lie. Um, those who were actually um, the, the actual terrorists, the, the, the three individuals who were who were uh, found guilty or and arrested and were interrogated before being executed for that kill of Archduke Ferdinand, were making the point number one. The reason why Archduke Ferdinand was a target was one because he was resisting the Greater Serbia agenda, which these people were all believers in devoutly that that Serbia was not just this little territory, but actually had the the God-given right to go back a few centuries into the past where there was a broader Serbian empire. And they had this, this mythos that was cooked up for them and that turned into a bit of a blood and soil cult about this idea of the um, the greater Serbia, which included a big, I mean, a territory like six times bigger. And they were saying, oh, the, this duke was against that. And when he, when they were pushed in further, this has been, this was recorded, their their testimony in interrogation they made the point that it was a Freemasonic operation that they were deployed to carry out a Freemasonic hit. Um, they they name names. They go through the whole thing. They talk about the the Grand Orient Lodge that had been organized by the uh, the United Grand Lodge of Britain of England. Um, they even they point out who the key controllers were within Serbia. Um, and uh, Joseph Bruda, who's a, a former writer for EIR, actually. Uh, documented and, and trans or had a, a big chunk of this transcription. But what was clearly communicated and all evidence points to this is that there's higher agendas manipulating the scene. Um, it's it's very similar to did today. And it's not just mm -hmm. today yeah. that you have you have these different groups being manipulated, but also you have um, I mean again, Georgia um, has been a, a an area right next door which went war with Russia for about five days back in 2008. Thank God Saakashvili is out. But if you had an, a, a sort of Soros movement like that back in play, then um, in Georgia, then they could easily try to take South Ossetia, at which point you get Russia being pulled in yet again. You've got Belarus, which just signed uh, an agreement to unify the military forces between Belarus and Russia as a, a common defense you got Russia, which has been forced to say in response to Angela Merkel, who, you know, just came out admitting that they were lying, that she was completely disgenuine throughout Minsk 1, Minsk 2 in 2014-15. She just pretty much just said, like, uh, yeah, we were buying time for Ukraine to build up their forces so that they could take back all their all their territory and go to war with Russia. And she said, if we just allowed them to do that back in 2015, they would have been crushed by Russia, but what a great job we did by deflecting attention away by, of the Russians 
and uh, buying them the time to receive the support they need as if they're somehow not getting their asses kicked right now as if so Russia's had to come out saying well look this we don't know who to how do you talk to people who who lie to this extent and you know Putin has said well we now we have to even go so far as to reevaluate our first strike nuclear policy in light of this sort of thing and in light of the fact that Biden also reneged on his promises to not use a nuclear weapons first strike especially on non-nuclear targets, which Biden explicitly did in his um, um, national defense authorization uh, bill, the most recent one, where he basically reserved the right to attack non-nuclear targets. So you have all of this heating up on so many different levels. And so to go back again to what what is it that that is the logic of the empire? I mean, <laughs> you had quite... The Kaiser Wilhelm, the, the guy who got pulled into this thing from the German side back in World War One, he said it directly. He said right on August, in August 1914, right at the beginning of the war, he said England, Russia, and France have agreed among themselves to take the Austro-Serbian conflict for an excuse for waging a war of extermination against us. That is the real naked situation slowly and cleverly go set going by Edward VII, who was sort of the grandmaster Freemasonic operative who was carrying out a lot of these different things and had his own family members deployed as the, uh, the you know, the crown, um, the, the different agents on various crowns, including the Greek crown. Um, you, you had so many um, that, I mean, Bulgaria had... Uh, had uh, Prince Saxe Kerbert uh, Goethe um, that Britain had placed on their crown in 1887. You had, uh, 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 what was another one? The, the Romanian crown had Queen Victoria's granddaughter placed on that crown as the queen. So you had the, the British royal bloodlines, which themselves go back a very, I mean, this, this goes back to the, uh, I mean, the Hanoverian dynasty, the Denmark dynasties. It goes back to Venice. It goes back a long way before even the, the name Windsor ever came about. But they had basically ensured that their operatives, their agents were instituted in these various governments with the same type of prejudices that they were inflaming of greater Albania, greater Bulgaria, greater Hungary, greater Greece. And they were even doing the same thing on the other side in the Ottoman so-called enemy territory, promoting the greater Turkey idea under the, the young Turks. So this is sort of how the game was played. They, they, they inflamed these ideological cults around ethno-nationalism, which saw, um, which had a romantic idea of past heroisms going back a thousand years into the past in some cases of, you know, that was again, just pure romanticism. They did the same thing in Ukraine, that they wanted to bring back this idea that our ethnic stock is superior, superior to the inferior ethnic stocks that we want to wipe out. So Edward VII was a key figure manipulating this. Again, going back to Kaiser Wilhelm, he said, Edward VII finally brought this to a conclusion by George V, Edward's son, the, the new king presiding over World War I. And so the famous encirclement of Germany has finally become a fact, despite every effort of our politicians and diplomats to prevent it. The net has been suddenly thrown over our heads and England steeringly reaps the most brilliant success of her persistently prosecuted purely anti-German world policy against which we have proved ourselves helpless. 
while she twists the noose of our political and economic destruction out of fidelity to Austria, out of, sorry, out of our fidelity to Austria as we squirm isolated in the net. A great achievement which arouses the admiration even of him who is to be destroyed as its result. He's speaking pathetically of himself, right? He's like, wow, what a great grand scheme, even though I'm about to be destroyed. Edward VII is, or Edward is stronger after his death than I am, who am still alive. Now that's that's the king. That's that's Kaiser Wilhelm II. All, ironically, um, a cousin of uh, Edward VII, and uh, and you know a, a fool, just like like Tsar uh, Nicholas II also was enmeshed in the royal family of Britain through his wife. So all of these people are inbred cousins. They were all placed there. Some dupes, some fools, some openly aware agents. And after the Serbian black hand, which by the way was was for those who haven't gotten it, not just Freemasonic, it was as part of British intelligence as and also the Okrana, the Russian secret police that were created as a Jesuitical Freemasonic operation inside of Moscow itself in the 1880s, 80s to stop the advent of the pro-Lincoln uh, Russian patriots around Alexander II and the third, who were both assassinated. Um, this, this grouping was then deployed with many other anarchist groups all over North America, all over Europe to basically carry out hits, assassinations of high, high value political targets. McKinley, President McKinley was one of them. Um, you had, uh, you had very many, uh, I would say several dozen leading statesmen were killed as well as just basically creating an, an atmosphere of terror, kind of like what the world has been put under after 9-11, especially was this state of you know public explosions in markets that would just polarize the people and make them more malleable to handlers who controlled these different idiot groups who often didn't know how they were being handled or how they were being used and deployed. But again, the key ideology of many of these anarchist terror groups was this idea of young Europe, young Again, young Croatia, young Switzerland, young Bulgaria, young Serbia, uh, young Turkey. Um, it was often imbued with this this type of insanity. And, and when they could create such a such a conflict, when the when the when the chaos was just ripe, then there were certain top uh, top down agreements that were initiated in secret, usually by British foreign policy, British diplomacy. That had made sure that things like the the Entente Cordiale was arranged, which is what Kaiser Wilhelm is referring to here. You know, the, the that was basically the secret agreement that uh, that Germany didn't know about, which involved J Russia, France, and England all agreeing that any time that there should be a war, all three would jump in. And when uh, Austria basically demanded that the Serbian government crack down on the terrorist movements and make certain other reforms, um, well were accommodated, the Serbian government said, okay, let's do it. And, uh, and despite that, you had some psychopaths within Austria who said, no, we, uh, we don't accept that. We don't accept those reforms that you're giving us. We want, and they, they were pretty much, as we've discovered later on, British operatives who were just idiot fools, kind of like the neocons, who had promises that they would receive a giant expanse of new territory if they could just help initiate a war with Serbia. Um, because they had been promised, they had they were in the know that that England and France would jump on board with Russia in any type of war. Now Serbia had an agreement with Russia, so if if Serbia were to get into conflict, Russia would have to come in as sort of the big brother and back them up. 
Well, in the same measure, Austria had a similar agreement with, with Germany that any type of conflict they got into, Germany would come and back them up. And these various, like the, the, the prime minister of Austria, the foreign minister of Austria were these um, fanatics, Freemasonic connected, um, again, kind of like the neocons. And they basically said, no, we're going to go to war with Serbia. And, it, and as soon as this, this got hot, then all of a sudden Germany got pulled into the war. And that was always the target, get Russia and Germany to destroy each other. And Britain could have at any time stopped this from happening. They, all they had to say was, well, you know, they just had to tell the, the Germans that, uh, that they have the secret agreement with, with France and, and Russia, and definitely that would have stopped it. But uh, there was all of this. And, and Britain also was the first nation to prepare for the war, all the way even before the assassination of the Archduke. They were already uh, building up their naval forces in, pre in preparation for the war. Germany of World War I was the very last country to start preparing for the war. They were the last to know, as we could hear from the pathetic words of the Kaiser. So why was Germany and Russia the targets? And why was this zone in the middle used as a hotbed? Well, they were the targets because you had in Russia and in Germany the, the most enthusiastic embrace of Abraham Lincoln's policies, right? We, we know that from the 1870s, especially 1860s, when Russia came in and saved the United States in the middle of the Civil War. They didn't just save mm -hmm. the United States at all, as, and then leave. They didn't do that, though they, 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 they did save the U.S. That's an important thing. They had like Russian naval ships off of the Atlantic and the Pacific coast with, you know, celebrations of Russian troops down the streets of San Francisco and of New York. And you could see etchings, you could see photographs, you could, I mean, sp read speeches by uh, Lincoln's main guests who were then saying like, this is, the, this is the most amazing thing, which is turning the tide of the Civil War because Russia was basically telling the, uh, the British and the French that uh, your secret agreements to help back up and join this, the, the Southern slave power in the war openly is gonna be seen as a casus belli against Russia. But that kept them out of it. That that gave Lincoln an edge he needed. He also had a very strong understanding through mm -hmm. people like Henry C. Carey of Hamiltonian greenbacks, Hamiltonian banking, which were deployed in force with the greenback system. Um, that was based upon the idea that money was going to be used as a servant for the elevation of the quality of life and productive powers of the people. Um, you know, you had protectionism of a very high rate that basically every country had the right to use, but only the United States had really pioneered the use of protectionism to cultivate and grow the industrial base so that the country was not dependent upon a monopoly overseas to control who makes your textiles, your, your machine tools, other things. So, you know, all of these things work together. And Russia saw coming out of the American Civil War experience, how effective these policies had been to not just unify a society that had formerly been kind of at war with itself on many points, going back even to this to the American War of Revol uh, War of Independence, um, you know, you had various various uh, states early on, basically at odds, at war with each other, right. not agreeing on any common policy, not able to coordinate each other's actions to do anything. It was basically going to be screwed. And they were highly underdeveloped. They had no real viable modern infrastructure, no manufacturing. So they were able to go from that into within 80 years, by the time the Civil War ro rolls around, and then a little bit afterwards, 
the most advanced productive nation in the world, even rivaling and surpassing Great Britain on almost every measurable economic front you can imagine, but without using uh, vast slave labor. They were not doing colonialism, not really. They had done wrong things. I'm not trying to say that, but unlike Britain, they weren't using the type of rapacious approach to, you know, extracting wealth from India or other things. They were actually using in the best American traditions, the powers of the mind of highly qualified, highly educated, highly moral um, citizens who are participating in what they understood to be God's creation, that you were mm. interfacing God by making discoveries, applying them to the productive processes, making inventions, making the life better for your kids. That was a sacred thing. It wasn't just econometric modeling for worshiping of money. So that worked so damn well. And everybody, all of the, I mean, coming out of the civil war, all of the, 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 um, the veterans found work, not all, but so many found work, employment, the nation was able to rehabilitate and Russia was just looking as well as Germany thinking, damn, they, they have so many parallels to us. They have done what we need to do. And they and then Russia and Germany brought delegates to the United States, studied how they did it, brought those delegates back to Germany, where you you know you had the 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 policies of what's what's known as the um, the Frederick List Society. Anybody who wants to know about this American system of Hamilton and of Lincoln, just read Frederick List, a German patriot and economist who studied in America, lived there for five years came in with Marquis de Lafayette, was part of the, the International Republican Networks, and basically took the that Hamiltonian approach of, of, a, of unifying the nation around a common idea of the general good and rail development, other things, and then brought it to Germany to unify the balkanized German state that had no unifying character. And they did that under what was called the Zollverein. That was what Otto von Bismarck ended up really embracing. No, no British free trade bullshit. He was like, we need protectionism. We got a direct credit for rail canals, schools, arts, other things that are going to bring the cultural standards to a higher level of wisdom and do it in a way that involves peacemaking. And he made sure under Bismarck's lead that there was always diplomatic bridge building on every front that Germany was not going to get pulled into one of these spiders, spider webs of British intrigue. Um, and it was only when, when Bismarck was ousted that finally you had an incompetence level that was sufficiently high that allowed for the stupid Kaiser to start agreeing to policies that pulled and enmeshed Germany ever more deeply into uh, unwinnable quagmires, like their own Vietnams were set up in the Balkans. Um, same thing in Russia. You know, you had Mendeleev, you had leading Republican statesmen yeah. around Clay, uh, you know, Lincoln's uh, U.S. ambassador to Russia, who were bringing in this policy for the Trans-Siberian Railway, protectionism, all the stuff with an outlook towards especially working with France, who at that time still had better people, and especially Germany, but also the Ottoman Empire that was realizing that they needed to industrialize and modernize fast. So they were building the, the Berlin to Baghdad Railway under, um, under Otto von Bismarck's lead. And that would have involved create basically undoing the type of economic despair that was needed to to mobilize by the British side, disenfranchised, abused young idiots into the Young Turks movement, which was sort of paralleling the Young Serb, Young Hungary movements and other things to basically weaponize young people the way that the, the color revolutionaries have done today in, in Iran, the way that they're doing them all over the world today is you take economic despair, where there's economic incompetence and despair, lack of hope. Black. You have a breeding ground for radicalism, 
and ethno-nationalism, other forms of radicalism that can be used as a controlled opposition to, to undermine the viability of nation-state developments. So that was what was done then. Um, and ultimately what we saw was just that, right? We, we had all of these allies who had everything in common to work together. The French, the, the Germans, the, the Russians, all, all with so much in common, all very quickly being induced to slaughter each other unnecessarily on behalf of who? Well, the emperor, the empire needs no permanent friends, just permanent allies. Uh, or permanent int interests, that's it, not even allies, permanent interests. So you could throw away somebody when they're not useful to you. You know, like, do we think the Anglo-Americans who are utilizing this policy today are going to, do they cherish their their German um, allies? Hells no, look what they're doing. Yeah. Germany is being right. destroyed, right? Yeah. Uh, they got warm, warming centers now. Um, where Germans are just being forced, well, if you can't afford heating, as most can't increasingly, you can go to these like official little warming centers um, and try not to freeze to death over the winter time. You know, um, like <laughs> they're even being told like all of the agreements that you had with China, which is offering you all of these economic opportunities to break out of the controls of uh, the Western, you know, death cult. Well, you're not allowed to work with that anymore. You have to like start sanctioning China, canceling your contracts with Chinese companies, kicking out or forcing Chinese companies to divest, as is the case also in Canada, where you know, like, oh yeah, we're told, yeah, we're an Anglo-American special interest zone. We're the, we're the friends of the Anglo-Americans. What we're, we're being told, like, China has offered every opportunity for us to have millions of productive jobs, building up infrastructure into the Arctic. They, they offered to invest billions um, on Belt and Road initiatives for North America. And in all cases, the Canadian government has come in with a Privy Council office, forcing Chinese companies that do have mining interests in Canada to divest, sell it all off to, to get kicked out if they had won contracts to have any type of interest over um, construction companies that were going bankrupt because we're not building anything. China came in, they tried to buy up Acon Inc. not that long ago. All of the shareholders were desperate and were happy that finally their, their company was going to get to build some infrastructure in Canada and around the world. And the Privy Council came in saying, no, this is national security, you're not allowed. And so Acon Inc. is allowed to, to rot because we're not allowed to build anything under the death cult idea of degrowth. So, you know, th there are no real permanent interests, uh, sorry, permanent friendships under the imperial logic. And the same thing for Kosovo or in Georgia or in Ukraine. They don't care about the Ukrainian people or any even the any the, the the radicals right now who are giving all giving all these promises to have an a, an independent Ukraine uh, sovereign country if they could liberate themselves from the evil Ruskies and stuff. No, that's not going to be maintained. They're they are going to be expected to be exterminated and subdued under a one world government of a highly reduced global population level. And you see that with Zelensky, he just sold off. Most of Ukraine to BlackRock to the World Economic Forum crowd. Mm -hmm. It's not like what are you fighting for at this point, right? It, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, looking back through history and their ability to, you know, work through th some of those things. You know, we had statesmen, we had an understanding of things of mutual benefit. Where now you have NATO, who says that you must suffer for the greater good of of NATO. You know, all all the European bloc, the Germans, and uh, it, it speaks volumes in terms of what they're willing to do, the sacrifice of, of humanity 
for their ideals and and instead of instead of transitioning and it's it, it's such a shame because i think that with the latest events unfolding it's it it appears to be an almost an act of, of desperation that that they they've realized that ukraine is a, a failure so now they have to change war footings at some point matthew and and uh you know it's 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 very interesting right now what's 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 evolving um mm-hmm. oh man absolutely absolutely i mean on so many fronts you know like like you have these various uh, it, it it is increasingly clear and you can listen to douglas mcgregor scott ritter i, I think their their analysis is pretty good in terms of like analyzing on the ground developments in ukraine how clear it is that ukraine is no matter how many billions i mean what are they at now like I think in the, in the NAS National Defense Authorization Act uh, bill, it was like another nearly billion dollars, eight hundred eighty million dollars. But that that adds on to what is now well over forty billion dollars of U.S. Um, weapons, as well as other forms of support that we don't we're not supposed to talk about. Same thing for Britain, which has openly been they've actually come out openly saying the or at least talking about some of the the different on the ground boots on the ground operatives who have been doing special operations in Ukraine. Um, that was just this week, but that's been going on now on, on, um, for a, a long time on top of the mercenaries and other things that have been deployed in there to basically just light the place on fire and use, you got to really feel for a lot of the, the, just the civilians of West Ukraine, not just, you know, men, uh, not just the women and children, but I mean, a lot of the men, they don't have uh, their heart in the game to go go to war with the Russians or to work alongside Nazis, but they're basically being told, well, we're going to take you out back into the forest and execute you if you don't play along with this and go to the front lines with insufficient training and other things. Um, and your family too, for that matter, um, which has been happening. There's been a lot of executions of those who have been defiant, not willing to uh, fight to the, the last man as... Lindsey Graham has said the U.S. is willing to get the Ukrainians to fight to the last man. And those who haven't, many have been executed. We've got video, disgusting video footage of the Ukrainian Nazis throwing their own people into mass graves that they've killed for basically speaking out or even trying to trying to um, raise a white flag in the middle of an unwinnable battle with the Russians. So rather than getting like bombed to death, they those who have tried to, uh, to surrender have also gotten killed en masse. Some have been successful and have told the tale to the Russians and others uh, of what happened to their colleagues when they tried to surrender. But we have like a really disgusting thing going on. So, I mean, everybody is disposable right now. And what I liked, as you said, it's, it, it is a lot of acts of desperation. I mean, here, I'll, before I say what I liked, uh, Zelensky even said, you know, like we want peace and the best way to achieve peace. He just said this to the G7 last night is to increase your, your, your weapon support to us. Yeah, that's the route to peace. That's the route to peace is more weapons, Matthew. (laughs) (laughs) More weapons. And also bomb Iran while you're at it. You know, that's how we're gonna get peace. He actually said, like him, the the, the Zelensky networks have actually said, his his personal advisor, others have said, if we want to actually have peace, NATO has to finally bomb Iran because Iran is providing the drones to the Russians. And uh, I mean, the, the, the level of insanity here on so many levels. So you have just, where, where, where is this getting interesting? Is we, we talked about the self-contradictions of the system. Well, the Trilateral Commission just had one of their recent meetings where for the, I think one of the first times, they actually allowed some journalists from Nikkei Asia to come in and view and report upon some of the proceedings, not with names, but, you know, it's kind of like a pseudo Bilderberger group um, run that was founded by David Rockefeller back in the 70s and, and Henry Kissinger and Zbigniew Brzezinski. So they've been doing regular meetings, you know, and the, the idea is, well, 
it's it's as Alex Alex Craner um, has has made the point that it's sort of like um, the trifecta general alliance controlling the new world order. It, it would be you know like just like Hitler with the with the British that under the the transhuman fascist new world order of the 1940s had that not been aborted the world would have been divided up by like you know germany controlling uh eastern southern europe and also like uh russia as a big slave colony the anglo-american crowd that would have killed roosevelt by then would have been in control of western europe and north america franco would have had some jurisdiction over obviously spanish-speaking parts of of latin america um, Mussolini, same thing, especially over big chunks of Africa. Uh, and Japan would have been the jurisdictional control of most of Asia, most of Oriental Asia. Um, so that was sort of, and Alex Craner does a really great job just going through how that same strategy is still on the books, just retweaked a little bit to remove Germany. So under the NATO policies, you know, like keep Germany down, Russia out. And that's been sort of what's been the, the policy ever since. Um, so the trilateral commission was set up to basically be that, you know, who was, how this trilat system was going to manage the world order. And what's interesting, but by the Nikkei Asia reporters is, and you could, anybody could just go to Alex Craner, uh, go to his Substack, stack, uh, trend compass Substack, and read, I think it's the, the fourth article from the, the, the most recent, um, they actually reported how various Japanese various South Korean, various um, Malaysian high officials who have been part of the Trilateral Commission all told um, Podesta, who's, you know, the U.S. ambassador to Japan, um, you're talking about us making a choice and forcing all other Asian nations to making a choice between China or you. That's going to cause World War III and we're going to be wiped out. <laughs> and they're basically just saying, like, you cannot do this. You're you're basically exterminating all of us because if you if we make ultimatum to other countries, they will all choose China. <laughs> mm. So why are you making us do that? Um, and they could all see you, you. I mean, it really was a sense. And this is what what is going on in the public in the Trilateral Commission. You can only imagine the, the sorts of fights that are happening behind the oh, scenes. Sure, right, um, right. You know. And they're like, no, we just can't, we can't make this type of choice. I'm sorry. And they've been, these are not good people. They've not been playing a noble role for the past 30 plus years of the, the great game. However, when, when push comes down to like the extermination of human civilization, while you have a viable emerging new uh, economic structure with a very strong security outlook around China, increasingly India, Russia, Iran, all sort of creating the backbone of inter-civilizational forces, all sort of agreeing that they don't want to die, that they want to create a better operating system founded upon leaping the limits to growth mm -hmm. and utilizing those types of principles, which frankly, I only can recognize these economic and political security principles active in the 19th century leading up into World War I. As the only other time that I could see, except for what Roosevelt tried to do, but that was short-lived, and what JFK tried to do, but that was short-lived, the, the Cold War made a lot of this good, uh, almost impossible. I mean, but the only other time was when the American system of political economy, utilizing this, this, this strong scientific philosophical outlook that we always need to increase the cultural standards 
involving scientific education, engineering education, the basic powers of logic and of reasoning and of literacy of everybody in our society so that we can leap beyond limits to growth. It is anti-Malthusian. It does use state power. So libertarians and anarchists and don't like it, don't like it at all. But it is not fascist in that sense. So it's not that it is a road to serfdom. It's not that. It's that it's based upon the principle that the government is the people, that the legitimacy of the government is in the welfare of the people. It's inextricably tied together. Unlike the fascist systems that say the people exist for the purpose of the state. That's Correct. different. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, most people just, I mean, I think we've just been living under that type of fascist philosophy of Hobbesianism and utilitarianism for so long that we forgot that it's even possible to think in a more natural way about political power. We haven't experienced it. We've seen the abuse of central government, central power banking so much to our own detriment now, as we're seeing, but also to the detriment mostly of, I mean, Africa, the India, the, I mean, look at coups and, and, and economic destruction that's been waged under the IMF and World Bank of central, you know, central power of banking. It does bad. We know that this thing can do bad, but it can also do good if you have, as Eisenhower warned, an informed um, and educated citizenry, and I'm not here to defend Eisenhower because the guy was a, a disaster on so many fronts, but it was good advice where, you know, good advice is good advice. It's true. <laughs> People have to recognize that they are responsible for the outcome of their, their national policies and the outcome ultimately of where the world is going. And to the degree that we situate our identity, identities in the, those terms, we can, we can make the types of judgments and actions that we normally couldn't do under a time if everybody thinks like a like a subject or a serf going back now to putin putin has been really trying to activate this and you can see it on his on especially the cultural policies by by really taking aim at the 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 the, the psychosocial cultural opium wars that have been deployed for many many decades now in russia the lgbtqxyz thing i mean th there is a real war right now to preserve the, the actual traditional cultural values of society, which are a precondition to having any type of democracy ever, ever, ever work. You can't ever, anybody, you can't have your society convinced that there's no such thing as right or wrong or, or good and evil, or that maybe there's no truth because every gender is, is possible. If you feel like a, like a, like an airplane, you're sex with an airplane and marry an airplane like that poor idiot German girl. Uh, who's like 28 years old in Germany, who's like getting the laws changed of Germany so that she can marry her her model airplane that right. she sleeps yeah. with at night. Like that's a society that's that's not fit to survive yeah. if that's the case. So, you know, like Putin has come out now. He's made he's made that firm on a cultural level. You see in Xi Jinping in, uh, in China, you have a revival of ancient Confucian. It's like a, it's a Confucian renaissance, which is happening in opposition to the dumbing down and, and cultural nihilism that has been spread by Western media complexes since especially the, the 70s and 80s. But that's now, there's a big fight to do that, to limit you know, childhood addiction to uh, video games to three hours a week, uh, effeminization of, of men in media and film and entertainment, that's all being cracked down upon, but it's being done with an idea, not just of going back to some like conservative feudalism, as many detractors would say, it's like if you look at what they're doing economically, they're working to build the biggest projects we've ever seen built in human civilization's experience, which are pulling people out of poverty. Like China had 3% of the, 
of their population in middle income in 2001. 3% is, that's bad. Today, it's 53%. Yeah, it's amazing. Right? Truly amazing. Totally yeah. amazing. Yeah. Whereas, look at the same inverse uh, relationship in the US or Canada situation in terms of the collapse of middle income America, the, the small and medium businesses, which are blossoming, by the way, in China. They're, they're now issuing more patents, intellectual patents, uh, for creative discoveries in China than they are in the West. Now, proportionally, that's we're still in the lead because we're fewer in number. But the fact is, it's just gotten quantitatively higher. And they're, the difference between us and them is that here, you can patent your ideas, but our society's not going anywhere, so you won't be, it won't be used. Or if it is useful, the military-industrial complex are, is going to basically you know, suck it up and uh, make it disappear. As the case of, you know, there's so many, Boussard, Dr. Boussard, who discovered that invented the scramjet, was the father of nuclear rocket science, had developed the, the most efficient designs for um, low temperature fusion reactions back with a polywell uh, device, mm. utilizing protonic and Keplerian octahedra and recognizing that there's certain like resonances in the electromagnetic field and also in the plasmas that you can create within certain types of cube octahedron structures. And he developed that. He got funding from the U.S. Navy and the military-industrial complex. And then, as soon as he started breaking the laws of physics back in 2007, it just disappeared. He got iced out. The thing just disappeared. Got absorbed into the beast. So that's that's what we're doing. Whereas in China, you actually have the application of these discoveries and of insights into building better forms of high-speed rail, magnetic levitation rail, vacuum tube, every type of pebble bed nuclear reactor development, thorium molten salt re reactor development. Everything that we're not doing or that we stopped doing back in the 70s, they're not only doing, but they're doing better than we've done. They, mm -hmm. they copied. So, yes, there was periods of copying like you do with any student copying a master. They are now going – they've gone beyond what the master was ever able to do. So for those idiotic people out there who say, oh, yeah, China's only doing what they're doing because they're, they're copying and stealing from us. Yeah, okay, that, that, that happened. We also stole from them, by the way, on, on a variety of things. But at the same time – they're now doing things we've never done. So explain that away. Okay. Yeah. So uh, true. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So true. And, and versus, for example, you know, let's take the last 25 years, uh, Matt, and think about the amount mm. of money that the United States has spent on these endless wars. Think of how that those trillions of dollars, if that could have been utilized for, for development for rail, so much better yeah. use that could have taken place here. And look, look, what's the net result? Where, where are we? Are we any better now than we were? It's just, it's just insane, uh, and it's a, and it's a vicious cycle. What's happening? And, and when you look at the policies, it's like you know all the double talk that's existing. You know, less than a month ago, it was like well, we don't want the Ukrainians to have any weapons that are far reaching. They're going to reach into Russia, and then Biden the other day is like, well, it's okay if they do. You know, we but they can use the drones to do something like that. And and people wonder why Russia and Putin is coming forth and said. I don't see a diplomatic pathway through this. I don't see the need to have a uh, conversation anymore. And, and I know a lot of people are reading into it. Um, I, your thoughts on it, I guess, apparently that recently Putin uh, postponed one of his national uh, annual type uh, conversation that he has with, with the public. And a lot of people are speculating, well, it's very telling because there's probably some other things that are, that are happening in the background uh, right now, which, which which there is, and it appears it looks like they're trying to create another little 
chaos where maybe um, NATO and, and Russia um, have a, a battleground that's different than Ukraine. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one thing. There, There's so many... So many things came to light in the last week. I mean, there, there's always this this scary um, um, sword just sort of hanging over the, the this discussion regarding the fact that Biden, um, all the way back in March, basically said, "No, we're, we keep we are actually reviving Barack Obama's first nuclear use policy against even non-nuclear powers." That that was there. It was re-emphasized by Biden very recently. And right when this happens, you have obviously um, all sorts of, of arsonists lighting things on fire in the Balkans. And then you have Merkel coming out saying, yeah, we've never been genuine with you whatsoever anyway. We just wanted to buy Ukraine time so that they could grow their Nazi forces. Well, she didn't say Nazi forces, but we could grow their forces to, to basically go to war with you. Um, so yeah, now Putin is in a position where, yeah, his scheduled annual meeting uh, or press conference was challenged a little bit because he's not, they have to have some serious discussions with high level, you know, officials within the Russian intelligentsia to discuss, well, how do we now um, communicate what our foreign policy is? Because this challenges a lot of things. The good thing is that um, you have the Gulf Cooperation Council, which has, again, played a pretty negative role, I would say, overall as, you know, permanent interests of the Anglo-American cartel. Um, but they had thought maybe naively that they were friends. Nobody should ever think that they're friends with the Anglo-American death cult. Um, they've come out and finally realized how disposable they are as simply interests who under the current configuration of the post-oil age will not have a role to play. And so China was able to successfully manage one of the best economic coups that I've seen. And Russia has been working on this for a long time. Both Russia and China together have been working very hard at building back channel discussions, diplomatic, uh, economic diplomacy um, in the Middle East and Southwest Asia, also in Africa. But right now we're talking about Southwest Asia, which involves getting Iran, which has formerly been a nemesis of Saudi Arabia and a variety of Gulf states, as well as of Turkey. Um, to get them to actually reopen up diplomatic channels and start cooperating. Massive uh, inroads, massive. Huge. Na name a segment of the world and, and there's inroads taking place. You know, Cuba. Oh, man, yeah. I mean, Cuba, I mean, everywhere, Cuba. right? It's like, it's just it's just truly amazing, the economic development. And I think the writing is on the wall. I think it's very telling, uh, the meeting between Xi and MBS. Um, mm -hmm. The winds of change are setting in. And just, I think the thing that I always get concerned or I don't want to say lose, lose sleep over is just that, uh, what what are what is the unipolar world willing to do? What are they willing to sacrifice in terms of of because I don't think they're going to come to terms that the rest of the world is moving on uh, without them. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. so I think for for that reason, it, it, understanding that every effort that they put forth with Russia, the economic sanctions, the price cap on on oil, everything that they've done is like just enhance and sped up the process. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the best thing that they could do right now, I think, is just solidify themselves and stabilize themselves so that they be as sovereign economically as they can possibly be with as little possible zones of conflict that could be like sparked. Because there's so many. That's how the British have historically worked is, is you create as many zone spark plugs that you could choose. You know, if one doesn't work, one one doesn't light, you can always go to the next, go to the next, go to the next. So you want to think in volume 
a lot of people, they get too myopic and they get sucked into these infinite uh, micro issues, you know, and they devote all of their time and energy into like one self-contained issue. They might get a little victory in one little battle and they forgot to think in volume, you know, like you have to think three-dimensionally here uh, in a multi-spectrum manner because the, the that's how that's how your enemy thinks. The enemy doesn't think in a linear fashion. They don't think, okay, that didn't work. Let's tr come up with a new plan and try this. Maybe at a certain point, I mean, that that is sort of what you put your you push the uncreative mind into that place. And I think ultimately there is all with all of the ingenuity of the oligarchy sort of techniques, there is ingenuity. You can't ignore that. There's a certain quality of perverse genius mm, <laughs> in, <yeah>. in that <laughs> tapping to that mode of thinking. But there's still this higher cage of anti-creativity because ultimately their their fundamental drive. And this has always been the case, going back to the oligarchical systems that one can examine in the days of Babylon or of the Roman Empire, the fundamental drive is to ultimately have perfect stability, equilibrium, stasis, whereby no real new ideas could ever emerge which challenge the, uh, th that stability you worship so much as a sacred thing because it's a control freak thing. So they actually are anti-creative, ultimately. Yeah. They're not able to, and that's why all, there's there's all of these incredible, inspiring stories. If you're looking for them, you can see them throughout all of history at different parts of the world of seemingly impossible miracles of individuals who are able to think on that higher creative level that the oligarchy only wants to reserve for their own personal initiates who are allowed to access creativity in, you know, if you're tapped on the shoulder and you're allowed to rise in a certain level to, let's say, become a, a Cambridge apostle or a, an Oxford, you know, uh, Rhodes Scholar, and you're 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 brought up into the rungs. You're allowed to access that higher quality of volume thinking, top down thinking. You're allowed to access the flexibility of utilizing irony to communicate in a lateral ways. Hmm. You can utilize these types of nonlinear modes of communication, which is what you know human beings. I think all natural, mature human beings are 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 destined to achieve that. The problem is when you've been victimized by an oligarchical structure of society that keeps you in a state of lower potential you 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 get stuck on literalisms the oligarchy wants everybody to be able to only communicate what they immediately sense with their five senses or feel in their gut you know i i like that cake <laughs> i like that show and listen to water cooler talk at the office right like mm -hmm. right, right. <laughs> or just repeat what what smart people they heard on tv said and act like it's their own right that's maybe the best thing you can get or trivia you know you're like oh yeah jeopardy i'm really good at jeopardy uh <laughs> yeah i must be really smart it's like well jeopardy is a bunch of like useless trivia out of context like that's not knowledge that's it's a computer could do that too right um so but that that higher quality of thinking when you listen to people like martin luther king jr listen to how he's composing his allegories, his metaphors to communicate broad lessons, which one could imagine volumes, thousands of books could be written, documenting in treaties, documenting the philosophical purpose of living a good life and things. But he doesn't waste time with literal description. He goes for stories that carry with them um, metaphor, ironies, very rich lessons, which really cut through intellectual garbage and go straight to the heart where the truth actually lives. And, you know, Thomas More, Erasmus, you could read Plato's dialogues. It's all playful. People who try to read Plato's dialogues in a literal way, 
they 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 lobotomize themselves yeah. and they oh. don't understand <laughs> how Plato is actually tickling your imagination to get you to think for yourself. And um and, and that's how the oligarchy always loses control. You know, you have a Benjamin Franklin who's able to organize. Usually it's this is not just an individual going solo. You have usually like-minded individuals who think and resonate in a certain fashion, who organize conspiracies for the good, <laughs> knowing what the weak Achilles heels are of this oligarchical parasite. You know, and Edgar Allan Poe exposes this in a lot of his stories. I always emphasize if people want to get an insight into the weaknesses of the oligarchy and their their inner neurotic uh, disorder, read Edgar Allan Poe's Mask of the Red Death. Um, read his his Fall of the House of Usher. Read his um, Imp of the Perverse. Those short stories get, that'll give you a better insight into the nature of oligarchical psychology and its weaknesses than, I mean as many treaties as you could imagine. Uh, and there's so many things that have been written speculating about the mind of oligarchs. Now just read that. It, he gets it. Cause, and again, why it's cause he's an artist. He's a poet. He's, he's able, he's trained himself. And as well, he's a scientist. Edgar, Edgar Poe went through West Point Academy. He was, he was trained in the infinitesimal calculus. That's the, the whole story of Dupin, right? If, if you look at his, uh, um, inspector Dupin, who, British imperial asset, um, Sir Ar Arthur Conan Doyle, later on plagiarized and, and ridiculed in the form of this idiotic Sherlock Holmes character. Dupin, in especially uh, the Purloin Letter, Google Purloin Letter, Edgar Poe, read that little short story. He just showcases exactly how the creative scientific imagination works when employed to making a discovery. And... Uh, and how to not fall for the traps of belief in your sense perceptions. Because the answer was right there the whole time when they were looking for that letter. The, the, the logicians, the people who were utilizing the most rigorous, extreme form of reductionist logic couldn't come up with the answer. All the inspectors of the French police couldn't come up with the answer. The only, but, but Dupin was able to figure out the, the key. And it wasn't through some mystical like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle impossible, you know, almost supernatural form of, of like, oh, I smelt a, a modicum of like 1% sulfur in the, the shoelaces of this character who then I associate with. No, like none of that Wolverine stuff. You know? like, mm -hmm. It's like pure reason, but de defined by this, this real, real uh, creative wisdom, which the oligarchy is afraid of, which is why they killed Poe, by the way. Because Poe was assassinated, he wasn't a, an opium addict fiend who was this horror movie like uh, uh, caricature. He was actually assassinated by hardcore enemies. That yeah, per Eureka! Anybody who wants to get the real Poe, look at the last essay that he uh, that he wrote called Eureka on his thoughts of cosmology, the moral and physical material principles of the universe. Read that essay. At least the first twenty pages of that forty-five page essay. Um, he was organizing that was part of a series of lectures he was giving all over North America over the, the fraud of Aristotelian and Baconian thinking. And he actually nails in, in that essay the, 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 what he calls creeping and crawling. Creeping being uh, deductive and crawling being inductive reasoning. Uh, a prioriism versus a posteriorism. A posteriorism. The, the idea that you can your mind is only allowed to use one of these two modes of, of action when knowledge. If you think that that's true, which is either the Aristotelian approach, believing in 
core blind assumptions and then building up, fitting all of your sensory data into those core assumptions, those axioms, which also comes out, comes forth in Euclid uh, or Ptolemy, uh, the astronomer, another Aristotelian astronomer. They, they all use this. Or if you believe inversely that we can only use uh, sensory data looking for patterns and then extrapolate patterns from our senses into what we call then universal generalities. If we believe that it's either one of those two choices or some hybrid mix of those two choices, we will think just like a binary computer, ultimately. We will yep. not access our powers of, of creative imagination or reason. And he, he zeroes it in by actually getting at the real power of Kepler. And, and Edgar Allan Poe actually translated some of Kepler and infused hmm. that as a healthy remedy because um, Kepler was doing a bit of both, but he did more than that by looking at the question of the harmonic musicality of the orbits of the planets. And it was from that higher concept that Kepler was able to then demonstrate his three laws, why they were true, why there was a harmonic uh, proportionality uh, that defines the distances of all of the planets around the sun. Um, without that, you couldn't have had the, de the, the development of the infinitesimal calculus a, a generation later by Leibniz, not Newton. You couldn't have had the development of our discoveries of um, electromagnetism. You couldn't have had Ben Franklin's discoveries of electricity. None of these things could have happened all the way up through the atomic age. None of Max Planck could not have discovered what he discovered on his Planck's constant. Um, you couldn't have had that had you not had Kepler because they all were studying Kepler and utilizing the Keplerian method, which was ironically bringing back the Pythagorean platonic method mm -hmm. of thinking that had been buried for 2000 years, especially after Rome was was destroyed by its own corruption internally. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm rambling, I'm rambling. No, no, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. I looking at the chat and I know everyone <clears throat> appreciated that. And I think that you're spot on in terms of, um, in terms of thinking, creative thinking and a lot of things that have been missing for several years, but I think that we can get it back, Matthew. I think we can get back to that era where people are, are, are critically thinking through things and not just looking at things and just, you know, one perspective and understanding it. But uh, great show today. Uh, Matthew, I want to thank you for that. I uh, also want to thank our live listeners for tuning in. Um, again, if you have not done so yet, uh, jump over. The links to all Matthew's work are in the description of this video. Um, check out his Substack as well as the Rising Tide Foundation and the Canadian Patriot Review. And we will do this again, hopefully, next week. Uh, Matthew, any closing thoughts before we close out this edition of The Great Game? I feel like I ranted so much. No, um, it's all good. <laughs> um, I would say take some time, tune off of social media for a day or two, um, read some Edgar Allan Poe and some Plato. Like I honestly, if people really want to go for that qualitative upshift of your overarching powers and really get a better sense of where the weak spots are of the oligarchy, really, 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 I'm serious. Take the time to read, as I just mentioned, in this order, read Plato's Apology, read the Phaedo, read the Gorgias, just spend a few days, you know, reading these things, put it on your agenda, uh, read some Poe, especially Eureka, but read also, you know, I mentioned here, uh, the Imp of the Perverse, read the Mask of the Red Death, read the Fall of the House of Usher. These, this is really quality. So instead of watching a movie or watching that stupid Netflix show you were going to watch, do that instead. Guarantee you better payoff, long-term good quality investments. Yeah, no regrets. Do that. All right. Very well said. Thank you, Matthew, and everyone for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of your day.